that with these, these next couple of months, we're going to go deeper into some of the topics that were raised or have been raised during, uh, during our Alpha talk. Um, so we've, we've done week three, and so week three is why did Jesus die? And so today uh, I've got the enormous privilege of talking about why Jesus died. And um, I come with fear and trembling. I'm, I'm slightly nervous because this is the centrality of our faith. Why Jesus died. A third of the Gospels uh, are focused on the death of Jesus. And the rest of the New Testament, most of it's talking about the reasons why, Jesus, why the cross was so powerful. Um, if, uh, if anyone has ever watched the satirical news show, Have I Got News For You? <laughs> yeah. we, we all have. We, uh, and you, you know that game, The Odd, odd One Out Round? This kind of zooming. Um, I've, I think we've got those here. Um, so, old one out. Archbishop of Canterbury, David Beckham, Drew Barrymore, kind of there, and then Justin Timberlake. Uh, tell me, what's the, who's the odd one out? Who's the odd one out? Justin Timberlake, yeah, Eurovision. Drew Barrymore, very good. Good observations. <laughs> Justin's got a beard. They're all friends with your face. They all follow me. Okay, anyone else? They've all lived in Palomino. Okay, they all have tattoos of crosses. Apart from. The Archbishop. <laughs> the Archbishop. <laughs> <laughs> who, who wears a cross? Who wears a cross? Um, and it's not just celebrities that wear crosses. Um, but lots of us, we wear, and I'm looking around now, lots of us, we wear crosses on our uh, bracelets, on our neck, earrings, cufflinks. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't know about you, has it ever struck you? It's a bit weird having a kind of a form of execution. <laughs> displays. It would be like me sort of putting a, um, uh, putting, like wearing a very nice pair of gallows <laughs> around my neck, or a nice car carved electric chair like, as a little bangle. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's kind of weird that we wear one of the most gruesome tortures, forms of execution, and. Um, we probably wouldn't go around with, with those kind of things on there. But in the minds of the first century Christians, just like in the minds of us, the cross is, is, all, is the symbol of all that is holy and precious. Um, because it's remarkable, before Jesus died, that the cross was one of the most violent, torturous forms of execution. And the Romans would, wouldn't even put their own citizens through that. Um, it says in, in the New Testament that, that Peter, the, the, the disciple of Jesus, the Apostle Peter, he was put on the cross because he wasn't part of, part of Rome. But Paul, he was a Roman, and so they beheaded him because they thought that the cross is too gruesome, it's too, too vile. But the cross is almost the logo of Christianity. It's our logo, it's the, the symbol. I don't know whether you've... Um, as we go deeper today, we're going to go deeper to why Jesus died on the cross. 
as the, cent as the central foundation of our faith. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, we've been talking about the story of our story with God's story. And we, as human beings, we're captured by all kinds of stories. One type of story that particularly stirs our emotions, and if you watched the, the episode last week, it stirred our emotions about why Jesus died. And it's this story of self-sacrifice, uh, of suffering. And the Bible surpasses any other story. The stories that we have now are a dim reflection of what the, the greatest story that's happened to us. And we say that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And I think it's this word love that kind of confuses. Why would, why would a God of love send a son to, to die? How is that love? How is that loving? How does that form a loving relationship? Um, every story, if you look at stories, they have a this thing called a meta-narrative. It's the, it's the theme that runs through the story. It's the, the hook that captures the audience. And if you look, if you look at the What's the meta-narrative in Scripture? It's this story of God's love. It's this story of God rescuing and freeing his people. And um, the storyline climaxes at the hill in Jerusalem. But I, I think it, we must begin to look at the book of Exodus. Because uh, Exodus is this, it's, I think it symbolizes much of what we believe today as, as Christians. And uh, the story of Exodus is the story of the children of Israel from it, from, uh, who have been rescued from Egypt. And I think it's, this is this controlling narrative that runs in the Bible. And, and many of the stories that we have in the Bible, I think, find some of their beginnings in the book of Exodus. And uh, we're going to read a passage from, from Exodus. It's when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And uh, so the words are going to come on your screen. So verse, uh, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of uh, Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why this bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this... Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land into, a, into that land, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then it goes on, it goes on. So God reveals himself as God of, God of the people, where he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
And then we have this here, this meta-narrative that God first reveals himself as a compassionate God, as a God of, who wants to be compassionate and act justly. When he says in verse 7 and 8, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slavery. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. That's the same God that come, wants to come and rescue you. That's the same God that hears your cry. The same God that when you feel oppressed or you want justice or you want compassion, it's the same God. The God that reveals himself in Exodus is the same God that reveals himself to you and I. And God saw in Exodus, God saw the misery of his people, heard their suffering. And what's he do? He comes down to rescue them from slavery. And uh, he disarmed Pharaoh. It's a, Exodus is, is a fantastic book to read. Uh, full of stories, full of mysteries, full of wonders. But it's this God that comes down to free his people. And the night of their salvation, the, uh, the Israel, in Egypt, the Israelites took part in a special meal. It was called the Passover meal. And God gave them specific instructions as to how to, to do it. At the heart of this meal was taking a lamb, this pure lamb, uh, spotless lamb, and killing it, killing the lamb. And this is weird, smearing the, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost so that the angel of death who, who would come by that night would pass over, wouldn't go into that, that house, wouldn't go into that room, thereby freeing, uh, freeing the people. Uh, Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5 is described as our Passover lamb. And so again, we've got a reference in Exodus, but Jesus is described as our Passover lamb. And when Jesus sees, when God sees the blood of Jesus over us in our lives, his judgment and his death passes over us. We're not affected by God's judgment or God's death. As we sang there, God is really good. And the batteries, the batteries are too. Those first five books in the Old Testament, the Torah, there's another book, Leviticus, and, uh, and we read that God puts in place this really important ceremony. Again, it's to do with blood. It's a bit weird. It's to do with blood. And that ceremony was, was meant to happen once a year. And the high priest would kill a bull uh, and a goat, and he would sprinkle their blood in the most holy place. You see, this was the place where God lived. And no one could go in there because they would be killed because of God's presence. Uh, the priest would enter. We were talking about this at, at our Alpha group on Friday. The priest would enter in, but he would have rope wrapped around his foot one of his foot, one of his feet. So as he entered in, it's likely that he could have died if he wasn't clean or, or in the right proper way. And so they used to tie the rope around his, his foot. If he did die, they were then able to drag him out. And uh, so it's a kind of an obscure story. But what would happen, and it was, a ver it was one of the most special days of the year for the Israelites. It was the most, one of the most important days, the Day of Atonement. Uh, 
And what the high priest used to do is they, he would lay his hands on a goat. And he would confess over this goat all of the wickedness, all of the, the Bible talks about sin, all of the rebellion of the Israel, everyone's sin and wickedness over the past year. This baby goat was kind of scared. Imagine the scene, like this kind of weird, weird moment. But this priest would just be confessing and confessing and confessing over this baby goat. And then what they would do is they would send the, the goat off to wander alone in the desert. Off you go. And the, the Israelites would be going, we're clean again. We're free again. All of our sin is on that goat, which is then off wandering. I don't know about you. I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, there's a synagogue up in Streatham. And I, I wonder, why are there any sort of goats wandering around <laughs> like Tutankhamun? <Common, you> know? <laughs> on the Day of Atonement, off you go, little goats. <laughs> I don't know if you think about that. If this was what must be done for the forgiveness of sin, putting the sins on this baby goat, uh, why, why doesn't that happen today? And the answer is Jesus. And the answer is because what happened to Jesus? And uh, we skip ahead from Exodus. We're now going to go to Hebrew. And it tells us that Jesus is our high priest. And that we don't need to sacrifice goats anymore or bulls. Because he is our he is the sacrifice. He is the ultimate sacrifice. The day of atonement used to happen every year, once a year. But Jesus, what it says is that Jesus entered into the most holy place once and for all by, by his own blood. Again, we talked about the blood again. And uh, so let me read it. That's amazing. Amazing. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede with him. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed, he sacrificed for their sins, once for all, when he offered himself. It's great. That's why when Jesus, when he died, the Bible talks about this, the curtain that separates the most holy place from the rest of humanity, it was torn in two. And Jesus removed the barrier of sin that exists between us and God. From the top of the curtain right to the bottom. It was ripped apart. Something no high priest could do apart from God himself. You see other religions and other uh, faiths and other, other, other things to have beliefs they try and tell you that it's our responsibility to get to God. What must we do as human beings to climb up the ladder to God? How can we become more and more holy, more and more clean? We've got to pray five times a day. We've got to uh, offer. It might be that this life is not, it's not going to happen for you. So maybe when you come back to the next life. But it's all about us trying to strive. And you know what? I've, I've been in many churches and I've 
for myself. We think it's, it's our responsibility to do stuff to please God. We've got to still attain that. But I guess the, the shift for us is that God has already done it. Instead of us climbing to God, God has done all the work for us. He's come down. That God himself, he's come down to, to rescue us. Again, that theme in, in Exodus. That God's heard our cry, so he's come down to rescue us. And so this theme in the Old Testament was that it's this circular theme. If you read uh, Judges or Kings or Chronicles, you see the people of God. They loved, they loved God and they, they have this relationship with God, but then they sort of turn their back away from God. Uh, they get into rebellion or sin. And this kind of circular theme that they then get uh, invaded or that the, the prophet comes and tells them of their sin and then they turn back to God. And all is forgiven. And all is that God has, God has forgiven them. But then they do it again. If you read the Old Testament, they do it again and again and again. It's kind of circular, circular things. We can't, so we can't get far as Christians without meeting the cross. This cross was this ultimate act where instead of this circular motion of people, then once a year, sending the goats out, God came and he intervened. God himself came. And so the cross, we're, we're obsessed with it. Uh, most churches not only contain crosses, but some of them are in the shape of a cross. Um, we wear it around our necks. We tattoo it on our arms. Um, and we take time, even with communion, we take time to remember the, the, the death and the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, and there's nothing wrong. But again, it's interesting that there's nothing in the Gospels about Jesus' teenage years. What did he wear? What kind of music did he like? Did he argue with his mum? There's, there's nothing about that in the New Testament. It's focused on this, this act that Jesus did. I, um, about ten years ago, I, uh, I'd met my dad again. I, I've only met my dad about four times. And most of the times I've met him, I've had to go out and find him. I've had to kind of search him down and find him. And I met him, Viv and I met him uh, about 12 years ago, just before Sam was born. And again, I said to him, why, why do I have to find you? As a dad myself, I would, you know, God forbid Viv and I ever divorced us, but I'd never, I'd never leave my, my kids alone. I'd never, you know, just ignore them. I'd never expect my son to kind of find, follow me. And so we had this kind of showdown. Uh, and I said to him, look, I'm, you, you've got my number. Uh, I'm on Facebook. You've got my email. Uh, if you, I want to have a relationship with you, but I can't keep coming to you. I can't keep finding, I can't keep finding you. And uh, I said, if you don't contact me in six months, I, I probably won't ever contact you again. Because if you want a relationship with me, I'm here. You know where I am. Uh, so six months later, I then spiraled into this depression because he didn't contact me. Sam was just born, and that kind of father-son relationship then, then happened. So I, I, went in, I went to the GP just on Bedford Hill, and they diagnosed me with depression. And he said, oh, you need to take all of these tablets. And I, I just couldn't do that. I was, it was a bit of a shock. 
kind of sibilance, like shock. I'm, wow, I'm depressed. I think Viv knew it for a few years before that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it suddenly realised I, I was I was depressed, and so I went to counselling. Uh, counselling is fantastic. Um, just talking about uh, the stuff, but it was costing quite a lot of money, and they they just want to keep talking. And uh, I'm a bit of an activist, so I'm like a year of counselling. I'm yeah, I've talked about this already. Come on. And so I went to a I went to a <coughs> summer Christian camp called New Wine, and they had this seminar about healing, getting healing. And I thought, in my head, I thought that might be cheap. It's kind of, it might sort, it might sort me out quicker than 40 quid an hour. It might sort of sort me out a lot quicker. So I, w- I walked in and uh, I was telling them all my problems and I was hoping for some sympathy and like he was going to stroke my depression. And, um, and he said to me, Steve, you don't know that, I don't think you know the power of the cross. Kind of like shook me. So I was like, I'm a Christian, of course I know the power of the cross. He's like, no, I don't, I don't think you really know what the cross has done for you. And so uh, that was a bit of a wake up call. I kind of came out of the meeting slightly embarrassed. Uh, my eyes were kind of, my eyebrows were up. Even now, I thought he was just going to pat my back and pray for me, and I was, it was going to be fine. And so we began looking at, what's the cross done? What has the cross done? What has the power of the cross done? Why was the cross necessary? Let's just look at the event itself. Uh, The Gospels tell us a lot about the days leading up to the cross. And Jesus kept telling his disciples what he was going to do, what he had to do, and what he was going to go through. And we learn that he was betrayed by one of his friends. That he loved. And he was sold for for the going rate of a slave. We're told about the terrible agony of Jesus in Gethsemane, where where he sweat drops of blood. Quite weird. Like you sweat drops of blood. In um, during the World War II, the Nazis carried other torture experiments. Where, and they found if they terrified someone enough, uh, it was possible to make them sweat blood. And so after Jesus' arrest, he was accused also by the religious leaders, and procl- but proclaimed innocent by the Roman governor. Remember Pilate, he was proclaimed innocent. He's innocent. I found no fault in him. His Pilate said he, three times he's innocent. Eventually, uh, Pilate gave in to the will of the people. And Jesus had this crown of thorns. He kind of, you know, in these kind of Hollywood movies, it was kind of gently placed, just like a street, just on the side, like a street gangster. He had his hat, crown of thorns to his side. But it was wrapped into his skull. And the aim of it was not only to elicit great pain, but also to humiliate him. Because he claimed to be the king of Jews. It's a pilot. And the soldiers just ran this, uh, ran this on Jesus. And it says that Jesus was also stripped and whipped until there was no skin left. So literally, you would see his spine. Some of the commentators say that you would see part of his spinal cord because he was ripped so badly. The whip that they used 
catamycin would have had um, pieces of metal coming through it. So they would whip his back and then pull it, pull it out. I don't, I don't know whether we grasp quite what Jesus went through. And so all the while he was being screamed at, he was being told all this uh, embarrassing things. He was half naked, maybe even naked. He was punched, he was spat on. And then they loaded this execution, not around his neck, they loaded it on his back. He had to walk um, to Golgotha. Um, and, and he collapsed. Remember, if you read the story, he collapsed just out of exhaustion. And at this point, this is when the writers just say, they crucified him. They just kind of say glibly, they crucified him. And so 2,000 years later, it's really hard for us to grasp uh, just what the cross has done. It's more than a fashion accessory. The cross is this powerful thing that Jesus went through. And so most would die uh, on the crucifixion just out of exhaustion. The nails through his wrist would cause the victim to hang in such a way that the, there would be pressure on his lungs. The, the way the nails were put in, the way that the, the, the nails were rammed into his, his ankles as well. And the victim would have to physically push himself up to breathe. They would have to kind of physically push themselves up to breathe. And so most victims of crucifixion would die because of exhaustion. Uh, they couldn't breathe any longer. It made, it made breathing near impossible. And it would take two or three days for this to happen. Uh, and so the soldiers, they would speed up this process by breaking the legs of the, the, the victim. Which, may, which would mean that the victim was unable to push themselves up. Uh, and so they came to Jesus to break his legs. That's right, and they found that he was already dead. He thought it was surprised. Um, on a purely, on a purely sort of human level, it's, it's, it's not difficult to pick out the reasons for Jesus' crucifixion. But if you go back, even at Exodus, imagine we believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that Jesus was with God before creation. So even at Exodus, um, Maybe even God would say, you know, mission possible. We all see mission possible. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become one of them. To die on the cross, to take their sin, to take their guilt on yourself. And bring them home. Even back then, I imagine God saying, just bring them home. This circular world that the Israelites lived in, what human beings lived in, Messing up, getting it wrong, turning back to God, and God being all forgiven. Because God sends Jesus, if you can bring him back home. And so Jesus chose the way of the cross. He chose to become a man. He chose to be like one of us. We breathe the same air that Jesus breathed. We walk the same ground that Jesus walked. And um, uh, when I practiced this earlier, this took about an hour and a half. So <laughs> I didn't need to speed up. <laughs> so let's take a break. No. Um, I've got this kind of visual, sort of this chemical illustration. Uh, I haven't tried it, so I don't know if it's going to work. Let's see. 
It's not communion. <laughs> it's not elder churches. Um, these, these three uh, glasses represent three things. Uh, so the Bible talks about sin. And it's anything that separates us from God. Anything that we do that separates us from God, us from ourselves, who we were created to be, but also us from each other. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it's a relationship. And it's a picture of what we are to be like on, on the world, we're, in the world. We're to be in relationship. And to sin is anything that stains us, anything that prevents us. Um, I'm just looking for a good deal, and I can, can talk about that. So there, there are things that we do that affect our relationship with God. Uh, and so we, all of us, there's no one here that can say that we haven't sinned, that we haven't done things wrong, that we haven't been affected or stained. And so if you imagine this is us, this is sin, and this is Jesus, what happens is, the, <laughs> uh, what sin does is it just stains us. It makes us unclean. It makes us so we can't commune with God. It's the thing that separates us from God. And the more and more we do, the more, the less like we are to God. And so what we do as human beings, we try to fix that by work, uh, addiction, uh, escapism, all kinds of people, drink, drugs, music, iPhones, Twitter. We, we try to fill, we try to fix that by, by ourselves. Uh, pornography stains us. It stains our relationship with God. Sex outside of marriage, God has designed us to be in, in a covenant relationship between us and God and us and each other. Uh, we don't often talk about sex in church. Um, that's why I was looking around earlier. Um, before we did kids, I was trying to make the talks quite PG-rated. But um, out of the pressure we had, so, so now I can, I can be 18-rated. <laughs> <laughs> the pressure we have as human beings to particularly in London, particularly in the UK, the Western world, to, to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to enter uh, a lifestyle of our, of our, of our community. S sex is a relationship between us, us in a married relationship, and us between God. We're making this covenant between God. Every time we have sex with someone else, or have sex in front of a computer screen, it stains us. It stains us. But the good news is, the good news is, so Jesus, it was said that he was tempted just like all of us. There's no temptation that you face that Jesus hasn't faced. But he's come clean. He was fully man, but really clean, clear before God. And so what happened? Sin tried to get into Jesus, and it couldn't. It couldn't affect him. The good news of Jesus, the great news of Jesus, that today, for all of us, we can be clean. 